we are focusing on the the kind of outer work you know how do i have an effect in the world or how do i make something happen and then you tell lots of people about that uh, and that's that's a, a real danger and i think is at the root of of why we want to talk about this being a being a real distraction and by addressing all the symptoms individually in the way the sdgs are laid out it prevents us from actually addressing the root causes of the problems it closes the analysis and it doesn't open up the pluriverse of all the different ways you can be in the world and the different ways you can arrange societies. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. We have two guests today, Oliver Mantikainen and Tom Rippin. Tom is the CEO of an award-winning social enterprise called On Purpose, which develops purpose-driven leaders, and he is also a trustee at Global Action Plan, and Oliver is an associate at On Purpose and has a deep background in sustainable development. I came across Tom and Oliver with their article entitled, Are the SDGs a Dangerous Distraction? The article takes great care in reframing the SDGs and asks some tough questions about the historical roots of the SDGs, the cultural roots, and perhaps also the ideological roots of the SDGs. It asks whether it's possible to disconnect each of the goals from each other, or whether that might not contribute to the overall problem. It asks other questions of us and whether or not we are willing to do the inner work necessary to overcome the crisis, or whether the SDGs might have a little bit of a feel-good attitude towards them. This very much falls in line with some of the questions we've been asking on this podcast, specifically whether we can even juxtapose the concepts of sustainability, development, and goals, or whether the contradiction is simply too much for the three to come together. Leave us your thoughts, www.coconut-thinking.design. We always love to hear your comments and uh, your ideas and your questions, and uh, just to speak. So again, that's www.coconut-thinking.design, and I'll leave space for my conversation with Tom and Oliver. Well, hi, Tom and Oliver. I'm so excited to have both of you on the show. Uh, I read your article um, a few weeks ago about the sustainable development goals. And on the show, for those who have been listening, we are very keen to explore what the SDGs might mean, uh, what they entail, and a lot of the histories behind them, not just looking forward, but also appreciating that they are part of a longer history and that we need to handle that with care and and, and understanding and, and, and really looking at it. For what it is. So we're going to get into that. But before I'm going to ask you a question, which we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? And since Tom, you are on the left of my screen, I'm going to read it left to right and I'll have, have you start if that's all right. Wonderful. Thank you, Benjamin. And it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me and Oliver on the show. We're really pleased to be part of it. Um, yeah, so who, who am I? It's a, it's a big question. Um, I guess, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband. Uh, late in life, I have become a doting father. Um, I am at heart, though, a scientist and by training a management consultant. And for the last dozen or so years, I've been a social entrepreneur and uh, I guess a, a teacher and I hope a mentor uh, to hundreds of people who have been seeking to make a change both in their lives and, and in the world. Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having us on today. I've been really uh, looking forward to it, uh, especially being here with Tom as well. It is a big question to answer who you are, and I think as well that I will start saying that first and foremost, um, I'm a son, a brother, a partner, and, and a friend, but in a more professional context, 
I did my undergrads in philosophy and I found it so useful that I felt like I had to go do something different on my master's. So I went from a Bachelor of Arts to a Master's of Science in Sustainable Development, very transdisciplinary program where I studied with people from all over the world with all sorts of academic backgrounds as well. And I've since then worked in sustainability and education in different contexts in a think tank at the University in Uppsala, at UNESCO, and now at King's College London, where I am as an uh, on-purpose associate. Now, the question we ask um, all our guests, and we started off really as, as an educational podcast, but now we've really uh, gone into different directions. Nevertheless, learning isn't just about education schools, and the different perspectives that we have paint quite a, a, a beautiful mosaic. I'll leave either of you to answer this question. How do you define learning? Shall I, shall I give that a first shot? Um, yeah, well, learning is um, something that we think about a lot at On Purpose. So the, the, the social enterprise that I run is, is On Purpose, which Oliver has already mentioned he is, he is a part of uh, this year. And for me, <clears throat> learning is, we're, we're coming around to the idea that we should think about learning as a complex process, a uh, complex system, like uh, all the other things that happen in the world as well. Um, and once you start think that, thinking that, you can start thinking about learning as systems change. Um, and especially, I would say, as the kind of subset of systems change, which I would describe as transformation. Now, let me let me explain that a little bit because it starts getting a bit, bit abstract. But, you know, systems change for me is when uh, the parts of a system change relationship with each other, when new parts get incorporated, old parts get um, taken out, how things are connected change, how information flows, etc. Um, and we see this all around us in kind of industries all the time, uh, whether that be uh, how technology disrupts an industry, how Uber puts different people in contact with each other to to book and uh, and carry out kind of taxi rides. Transformation, on the other hand, is a subset of that, which not only does all of that, but it also involves the kind of deeper, um, you know, change in in the kind of beliefs and values and worldview, if you like, that a uh, system is rooted in. Um, so it goes kind of a, to that deeper level of of change. Now, if I translate that into you know, what does that mean for learning for individuals? Um, you know, it's not just, we, we are conscious that for us, this kind of learning that we're trying to make happen is not just about rearranging people's, the ideas people have in their heads or the knowledge or the neural pathways uh, in their heads. But if it's gonna be transformatory, which we think is necessary, I'm sure we'll come back to that. It also needs to affect people's beliefs, their values, their assumptions. Um, and there's a couple of, consequences that that has you know um i think for for that kind of complex learning if you like to happen it it needs to involve the whole person you know not just their mind as, as we often kind of prioritize but also their emotions their body their relationships their spirituality uh, as well it needs to involve not just thinking but also doing and practicing and experimenting and trying new um it needs to actually involve quite a whole Quite a, quite a bunch of unlearning as well as learning. We often think that learning is just kind of adding stuff, but sometimes we have to take stuff away to be able to get to a point where we can add different stuff. And importantly, and this is a big part of our program as well, you know, I believe learning is not done in isolation. It's a social exercise. It requires interaction, feedback, trial and error, exchange. 
it happens through the relationships that we have with others, whether it's be those learning with us alongside us, uh, whether it's be those we are learning from, or uh, whether it's other people just happen to be around us in our lives at the point when we're making uh, some of these new discoveries. So those, for me, are, are some of the kind of key um, or some of the important facets of, of learning that we're trying to get better at ourselves now and kind of embrace more actively. And what I really appreciate about your response is that you started off in terms of the complex process and really describing systems, but also living systems. So we are living systems as individuals, but of course, when we start to bring about these relationships that we have, we are within a living system and, and the connections. And, and the first thing that came to my mind also was, was Peter Senge and, and his book, Learning Organizations, from, from way back when it feels like now. But, but this idea that learning isn't individualized, but really is that social experience, is that embodied experience, and in the space between us is, is for many people, quite, quite a, a push. How does that necessarily work in systems, and this could be in school or outside of school, where people are so individualized, how are we going to, uh, or what would it take perhaps to move the conversation in a way to kind of look at that space in between? Oliver, I think I think there's a few things that we try and do on the program in, in, in that sense, in terms of kind of, you know, building a strong cohort of people who are going through a one-year program together. Um, uh, they have kind of shared experiences, they have uh, shared ups and downs. Uh, they have different ups and downs at different times, which is helpful. Actually, <laughs> not everyone has the same ones at the same time. Um, uh, they 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 face challenges um, uh, and can celebrate successes together. Um, I say at our top line, those are those are maybe some of the things. But but Oliver, you may well have some kind of more um, practical examples from from what you're going through at the moment. Yeah, I think one thing that has. Um... One way of framing education that I have found quite helpful is that education is a, is a process of becoming. And the question is then, of course, becoming what? Because we're not just talking about becoming a, an employee or, or someone who can successfully slide into the workforce, but becoming in, in, a more, in a broader sense. So exactly as you're talking about something, it's about relationship to people, the people around you who you might share the program with. Um, but also around further than that to the natural world around you um, to other disciplines as well is something that could really open up your horizons um, in many different ways, both when you're talking a very, what can you say, professional setting, if you're talking about different ontologies in, in different disciplines that open up completely new worlds and ways of understanding the world and your relationships, um, but also very practically solving solving complex issues with people from different backgrounds that approach problems and frame them in completely different ways than yourself, who understand their own relationships to the world in different ways than, than your own. And I'm going to pick up on this word becoming. It's it's a word that is is so incredibly complex because it takes us away from being. It certainly even takes us away from doing. It, it is this process that we're constantly becoming and it takes us into areas that could be so varied from quantum physics to Buddhism to all these things that were just moving, moving, moving as, as processes. And, and I'm going to use this as, as a segue to your article and ask you perhaps to introduce it. And particularly with this idea of if we deconstruct the words or the, the expression, if we take them apart, sustainable development goals, this idea of goals, which is juxtaposed with the word development, which itself is juxtaposed with sustainability. Could, could you introduce your article and perhaps go through the tensions 
that come along with juxtaposing all of these words. And and for those who haven't read the article or for those who have, but just want to get a more, bit more background, could you just introduce it so we can springboard into uh, some of your thoughts in relation to this article? So I think the, the first conversation between Tom and I uh, started after a LinkedIn post Tom made about the, the SDGs or UN Sustainable Development Goals, where he said that we need to, to form an ideology critique of them. And that was exactly my uh, thesis topic, what I wrote my master thesis on. So I was so happy to to hear it. And I think it really comes from the from the fact that the, the SDGs are presented as a transformative agenda that has been accepted almost wherever you look, whether it's from small student organization to, to large uh, uh, corporations. And the idea when you have uh, an agenda that is laid out to be transformative, but we felt that it in many ways actually strengthens the, the status quo and is more a way to extend the current ways of, of doing things because it doesn't go uh, beyond the current paradigm was something that we were really interested in. So we were starting to dig into the specific SDGs to find out what is it exactly about it that's, that's problematic and why does it not lead us to a transformative future. And maybe just to, to, to latch on to your juxtaposition of that word becoming and, and the word goals, you know, um, I mean, one, I think both Oliver and I try and take a kind of, again, these are big words and they can be abstract, but we try and take a systemic view of these things. And I think if you do that, one thing that I try and think about is it's not about trying to create a bunch of outcomes because we're not very good at that. You know, the, the, the issues, at least at these very, this, the scale of these very big complex issues, you know, we, we actually can't create solutions. We need to create um, systems. We need to create circumstances. We need to create conditions from which the right kinds of outcomes will emerge. Um, we may not quite know what those outcomes are going to be at this point in time. Uh, so we need to create a system that we think is going to, is going to kind of develop in the right way always in, to use the word to become the right kind of place uh, in which uh, the right kind of solutions will, will come about. And I think there's, that's where you can kind of make a connection. You know, another idea in systems is, of course, that, that things are fractal. So what holds at very big levels can also hold at very small levels. So maybe one way of thinking about learning then is, well, how do I kind of, rather than thinking about, oh, I need to become, you know, a really expert X, Y, Z, and I, I want this outcome, or I want to get this score on whatever test or whatever it might be is, well, how do I, how do I curate myself? How do I create an environment for myself, which is going to allow me to become, which is going to be allow me to develop uh, into the, in the kind of directions that I'm, that I'm hoping for. When we talk about this transformation, when we talk about the fact that the SDGs won't lead us to where we necessarily, uh, towards that horizon where we might want to be headed, how do we explain the fact that they have been accepted so so quickly, so easily? I, I'm, I'm asking this from the point of view of education because I know, I mean, digging under you know, SDG for quality of educa quality education, nature, the word nature is not mentioned once. Um, I, I'm thinking about the fact that there's, you know, I mean, we, we, we could go into the fact that only three of them are not anthropocentric goals. We could talk about growth, we could, all these matters. Why are they accepted so easily and so quickly? I think one point, um, the first point is that there is something in there for everyone. 
There are 17 goals, 169 uh, targets, and 232, if I remember correctly, indicators. So no matter what you do, there is there is something for you that you can you can latch onto in, in the goals when you can see the work you do reflected. Then you become part of a global agenda. It's something that's accepted by by the UN, by basically whichever organization you look to in whichever part of the world. So you become part of a large um, large agenda or a large movement. And then you feel like you're doing something. I think the idea that you can you can take one of the SDGs, you can take out SDG four in education, for example, or whichever one you're working on, and you can stick that on your website or on, on the program you're launching, is something that's incredibly attractive because it connects you to a sustainability agenda. It shows that you're working towards something. Even though we have so we have some solutions and some projects that are functioning and propose the solutions, but I don't think we always know what problems they are the solutions to. We describe uh, in our article the SDGs as a, as a dangerous distraction. Um, and I think I think that kind of comes from a sense of them having been so broadly accepted, uh, so much energy, resource, time going into them. And yet, <clears throat> us feeling that, you know, we, we are in many ways, just barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> We're trying to climb the wrong ladder. Um, and, but as Oliver says, you know, the fact that I can kind of do something that is, you know, that is credible and justified and sanctioned by the UN and so many governments and other organizations around the world makes me feel good. And if I'm a bit cynical, I could even say, well, you know, there might be some goals that really don't work for my business, you know, for my business model, you know, actually I'm, I'm, probably kind of causing harm in that area but you know let's let's just focus on the other three over there you know we can make a real good case that would that we're doing something about those um and i think the danger is again maybe bringing it back to a kind of a learning point is that it allows us all to do something to feel that we're we're doing something for the world to feel better about ourselves without doing that kind of more harder inner work that we would talk about in an individual you know we're not we're not looking inside ourselves or as organizations we're not doing the equivalent of looking on a, a, inside ourselves challenging some of our core beliefs and what we're here for and then kind of seeing where that leads us we are focusing on the the kind of outer work you know how do i have an effect in the world or how do i make something happen and then maybe tell lots of people about that uh, and that's that's uh, a real danger, and I think is at the root of of why we want to talk about this being a being a real distraction. Yeah, I think what, one issue with the agenda twenty thirty and the SDGs is as well when you formulate critiques, you can do it in different ways. You can say that they don't whatever you're uh, critiquing doesn't live up to standards from that set in another place, um, or that the thing you're critiquing doesn't live up to its own standards. But I think. The problem with the SDGs is that if they are successful, and this is the paradoxical uh, conclusion, that if they are successful, we're going to fail. And I think that's the that's the complex part about the SDGs because the problem is not that necessarily that we're not uh, reaching the goals quickly enough, but it is that the goals that the whole thought and paradigm they're built upon is wrong. So by pursuing this and running quickly in this direction, we uh, causing a distraction for ourselves and it's actually bringing us in the wrong direction, I think. Um, so it's the the idea that it, it's better to move slowly in the right direction than to rush in the wrong one. 
And my worry is that the SDGs make us uh, rush in, in the wrong direction. But someone might ask, zero poverty, uh, zero hunger, those are, those are wonderful goals. Sustainable cities, those are wonderful goals. Uh, gender equality, wonderful goals. How, how can those possibly be distracting us and, and taking us in the wrong direction? I think going back to what, what Tom said, said earlier, obviously no one can, can disagree with those goals. It's not that we want poverty in the world or, or gender inequality, but it's the idea that these are symptoms of larger uh, structural issues. And by addressing all the symptoms individually in the way the SDGs are laid out, it prevents us from actually addressing the root causes of the problems. And this is what, uh, what causes the problem for us. I often use a medical analogy, uh, both in this situation and more generally in my work. And uh, I would say, you know, if, if you, if you um, had 17 different symptoms uh, as a human being, you know, I don't know, uh, you're coughing and, and whatever else, um, you know, one doctor might come along and say, well, I'm going to give you 17 different medications to tackle each symptom separately. Um, and, you know, and you're going to feel better. But actually the root cause of these 17 distance, 17 uh, different symptoms is that you are basically a chain smoker <laughs> and we need actually to kind of address the fact that you are a chain smoker just giving you lots of kind of medications that are going to manage your system sorry your, your symptoms uh, is, is not going to solve the problem yes of course you know the person who comes and helps you quit smoking also wants those symptoms to get better and i believe if you manage to do that, uh, you know, you, you will get better in the long term and it is a more sustainable way of doing that. And of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't also take the drugs that help you with the symptoms at the same time, but you've got to do the work to get you to quit smoking. So let's go into the work in just a little bit, but first let's rewind maybe and look at the SDGs as uh, coming from a, a longer historical context than 2015. What are the cultural roots of the SDG in terms of the story that led up to um, the, the SDGs? How, how far back are we going here? I'll be a bit hard-pressed to give a, give a specific year, but they follow a history of development agenda. So they build on the Millennium Development Goals. Um, if I remember correctly, there are six of those. So it's a huge expansion on that uh, large international development agenda. And I think they should be seen in that in that context as well, that the SDGs are part of a development history, a way of understanding how societies work and what good societies are and what how you live good lives in, in those societies. And I think it's I think it's really important to put it in that context because we have put the word sustainable in front of them, which in many ways is is good. It's good that we're trying to incorporate the environment into development thinking, for example. But nonetheless, it's still an agenda that has a, a development idea where you have countries that move from least developed to developed. Uh, the developed ones are always the, the Western ones. We're the ones that <laughs> defined the development thinking uh, back then as well. And you have this idea that development becomes a one-dimensional path where you have a one universe of development where you can move from um, least developed to more developed according to these goals that are set out in, in the agendas. And what that often does is that it closes the analysis and it doesn't open up the pluriverse of all the different ways you can be in the world and the different ways you can arrange societies. And as a more as a broader critique of development more generally, of which the SDGs are part as well, 
I think it's this basic fact that they create a more one-dimensional idea of development. We have the five stages of development that go through industrialization and so on, uh, and doesn't open up this pluriverse of uh, options that are out there of ways to organize societies. And of course, the the roots historically go, you know, back and back from that. I mean, you know, you could then go back to the Rio summit. Was it is that nineteen ninety two, I believe, or thereabouts, uh, where some of these ideas were introduced. I think that is not coincidentally, you know, ten years after uh, Reagan and Thatcher come to power, uh, and the kind of neoliberal agenda really gets gets kind of embraced. Uh, and and that in turn, you know, you, you can trace the thinking back to the Enlightenment uh, and the ideas of how, um, you know, humans are qualitatively different from nature. You know, humans are the only uh, kind of beings that can, can think rationally uh, and therefore, you know, from that develops a kind of an idea of, 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 uh, of, of you know, it's okay to exploit nature. Nature is there to serve humans. Uh, you know, humans are not part of nature and humans are, separate on top of nature for an example or you know the second thing that i often talk about that that comes from from that kind of same time uh, and, and descartes was well known for this 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 idea of, of anal analysis of literally solving problems by cutting them up into their constituent parts and then addressing those constituent parts separately in, in isolation that is i mean the the this, just the sheer kind of articulation of 17 different goals is, is precisely uh, a kind of an example of that. Um, and what that does, however, is, you know, and, and, and systems thinkers, especially over the last 100 years or so, have, have been rediscovering this is, of course, it neglects the, the really critical relationships that those parts have. Uh, and if you only look at that one part of the world, if, if you look at the world as individual separate parts, you are missing a whole big and, and very important part of the, of the puzzle. And that's been fine for a lot of the problems that we've solved incredibly successfully over the past few hundred years, you know, whether it be putting someone on the moon or, or, or you know, developing the internet or whatever. But um, increasingly, the problems that we are facing, um, you know, climate change, Kind of crisis, I should say, uh, inequality, health, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, that way of thinking is just not is just not set up to be able to make progress on on those kind of complex issues. And I suppose that's the crux of the question: that when we embrace the SDGs, we're also embracing a longer history of compartmentalization and separation from nature, and that has to be taken into account because because of, of the, how the SDGs ended up being born from that, those mindsets, so to speak. Nevertheless, we're still left with a question which, which needs to be resolved. If we're all at different places. We're all at different places in, in, in our, um, on, our, on our journey in sustainability. Some of us are a little bit on a different place on the, on the, on the road, and, and, and we still need to make sure that everybody comes along. How do we get around this idea that for some people, the move towards a more sustainable lifestyles and and ways of becoming, they need access. They need they need they need to feel that they haven't been doing things wrong. They need to feel like they are adding and, and doing better things for the world and, and and having that sense that Oliver mentioned of doing good. 
how do we work with those different speeds because different people are in different places? Are the sustainable development goals a dangerous distraction? Could they be useful? Where do we come? Because some people, when you tell them, let's do the inner work, they're going to look at you like, like, you're, like you're cuckoo. No, I think that's true. And, and that's, uh, that is not how you, <laughs> it's helpful to kind of show up uh, with, with large numbers of people. Um, maybe just to come to the point on the SDGs first, uh, you know, I, I think for some people, hopefully they are at least making them aware of some of these big problems. And it is providing permission to talk about these. It is providing a license to say in you know, places where these kind of issues would never have been talked about. I know big boardrooms or whatever, that actually we, we should have a conversation about this. And that's good. It's, it's raising that awareness. It's raising that consciousness. Um, what I hope that will serve to do, though, is that it will also help people see, wow, these things are important and actually we're not making as much progress as we need to be. And we don't have much time. And I hope, you know, the way that they can maybe be a bridge is that uh, they might prompt people to dig deeper and to kind of discover that we actually need to make some more fundamental changes. The risk, however, is, of course, that it takes people too long to realize that. Uh, and, you know, and we you know, genuinely don't have that much time. I mean, by the time the kind of SDGs are supposed to be achieved, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we will have, on some of these issues, kind of run out of road and, and we need to make changes, uh, you know, more fundamental changes uh, before then. I think um, the other thing I'd say is that you know, we don't actually need to get everyone on board with this at the same time. You know, if you look at how people understand how tipping points happen, uh, how cultural change, how paradigmatic change happens, I mean, I think kind of studies varies, but I've seen numbers anywhere from 10% to 25% of people, you know, once, once in groups, are, in groups, a, a, a sometimes relatively small proportion of people change, that can trigger a tipping point, a kind of a cascade of other people following suit. suit. So I think this idea that, oh my goodness, we're, we're never going to get everyone to change can sometimes be a bit paralyzing. Uh, and and we, need to, uh, we need to remember that, that actually that's not necessary. You know, we, we've got a much more achievable uh, task, which is to, you know, to get a, uh, a significant minority uh, to kind of engage with these ideas. Yeah, I completely agree with Tom. And to take the SDGs in, in defense a little bit. Their, the idea with the SDGs was to get a critical mass quickly, to get as many people on board and to create momentum that way. Um, exactly to get to that uh, critical mass where you will see tipping points and, and things changing. I think the problematic thing is though, um, when they integrate nature, for example, even though it, that, that can be seen as a good step because the Millennium, Millennium Development Goals didn't have nature in them. So that is a good thing. But the way nature is integrated is as a resource that's supposed to uh, be managed and accounted for in you know tables and in monetary terms and things like that. Um, you have economic growth, for example, that's um, used synonymously with well-being which is also problematic. So you have a lot of ideological assumptions in the SDGs as well. Um, and this is what we overlook sometimes. And I think this is what might prevent us from creating that critical mass because it doesn't engage us in a significantly different way than, than the way we are approaching the problems already. And, and I think, you know, the, the, one of the consequences of that is that, is that, 
you know, they, they, they can work against each other, you know. So the, the stimulation of growth uh, that the SDGs include in, in, in various places, you know, obviously contribute to some of the climate uh, dynamics that we have, therefore contribute to the hunger crises uh, that we see because of the droughts in the Horn of Africa, for example, uh, and so on. And, uh, and that's the kind of that's the kind of dynamics that we need to be aware of, uh, you know, that we can't deal with these things in isolation. I don't think many people intellectually will say they can. Most people will accept, of course, they need to be solved together. But uh, the, the kind of implication of what that means, that you actually then need to go deeper to the kind of a more root cause level, that is the one that I think not everyone will then kind of sign up to. And this is the part where we can transition to think of what that might look like or what perhaps some of those touchstones might be. We talk about the inner work as individuals, but as we started the conversation, it's also about the inner work between us, the relationships that we have and working together on that inner work. What might that look like? What might that begin with? What are the questions that we can pose? What is the pain that we have to go through? Because it is a matter of pain. To, to be to, to go through it because we have to, to be hit in the face with, with some realities. What might that look like? So I'd, I'd actually choose not to emphasize the pain. <laughs> I would actually choose to emphasize where we can get to. Uh, and that actually, if, if we can make the world, if we can understand how the world genuinely works, um, you know, I, I believe that our understanding of the world for the last couple of hundred years has developed in a way which which is which is now actually known just to be scientifically wrong you know the the theories that our economy and our management practices are, are rooted in uh, are just you know shown in lots of different ways the assumptions they're based in are just are just not correct and yet you know somehow they they still maintain themselves so <clears throat> i think actually one one way of going about this is to not emphasize oh my goodness you know this is going to be really painful and we're going to have to wear hair shirts and whatever but actually to emphasize that hey if we can make this work if we can find if we can change how we understand the world and actually bring that in line with our latest cutting edge scientific understanding actually you know because this is actually the, the the real understanding um we're actually going to end up in a, in a much better place, you know, okay, we may not have the same level of GDP, but we will have, you know, we will lead more fulfilled lives with higher well being uh, in a in a in, in a natural world that is healthier. Uh, and you know, where essentially we, 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 we have better lives on a on a healthy planet, who, who doesn't want that. So let's, let's focus on that. Um, then I think the inner work to get there is Again, I wouldn't emphasize the pain. I would ex I would emphasize, you know, the, the excitement of the discovery. You know, I I sometimes tell a story about I, I was very fortunate uh, a few years ago to be able to do a, a sabbatical um, in uh, I, I had a I had a, a post at the London School of Economics, which just allowed me to read uh, with kind of no no commitments attached, read and 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 find out and discover and watch talks and all the rest of it. And I was kind of at a point at that point where I knew. I read lots of stuff about how the, the the kind of our current economy, how capitalism was broken, uh, but I come across very little about uh, what an alternative might be, what it could look like. Um, and I think, like many of us, I 
kind of been brought up through through education, through the, the jobs I'd done to kind of have this idea of the world of, his, of it being a, a nasty place, you know, red in tooth and claw, um, you know, competitive, uh, people are selfish and, and greed is good. And I'd kind of reluctantly and half-heartedly accepted it because it just seemed to be what everyone agreed on. Um, and especially the people who propose it, you know, I think we're, we're always very good at kind of saying that, that this is the hard-nosed thing. Anything else is terribly naive. And I remember during, during my sabbatical, I was, I was so relieved. I was so happy. I was genuinely quite emotional finding out that this is actually not the, this is not really how the world works. Actually, cutting edge science is much more in line with kind of what I would say were my original values or have always been my values, maybe deeper inside uh, and which I'd maybe kind of learned to hide a little bit, which is that, you know, actually progress happens through collaboration. You know, people, uh, organisms, the world works by, by us all kind of doing our part and contributing to the, to the common good. Um, you know, inclusion is necessary. <laughs> you know, it's not a kind of optional extra. All these kind of things, which I'd always felt had, I'd been taught to think of as a, as a little bit, little bit woolly, a little bit naive. And I suddenly realized, actually, this is how things really work. And this is what we could bring about if we managed to kind of make this change happen. And I then went from a kind of idea of like, this is not only possible, but actually I, I'm now convinced that unless we make that kind of transition happen collectively, you know, we are not actually going to be able to tackle the challenges that we face. And I'm glad you caught me on the word pain because I didn't explain it very well and, and maybe it made sense in my head, but I don't mean that we're going to live in caves and, and you know, use clubs to, to find our, our food. I guess what I meant by pain is, is more in, in the way of, of Donna Haraway, of, of sitting with the trouble, more of asking those tough questions, more of having those very open, candid conversations that might hurt, but we've been putting band-aids over them or, or avoiding them for so long that this is the, the situation that we're in. I guess, I guess that, that's, that's the angle where I'm going at. However, I'm also thankful for you saying that we can imagine a better, a better future. Oliver? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I think it's important to acknowledge that at this point in time, there are no non-radical futures. Sometimes when we think about the way we approach uh, problems, we imagine that things can continue the way they are. And what seems radical uh, is something that really disturbs the, um, the, the current affairs of things. But the more the, the solutions that we would consider radical today might be the ones that are able to uh, maintain societies as, as we know them or in the good things about them or even make them better. And the things that we don't consider radical today that we could call either business as usual or in quotation mark, uh, realistic, uh, they are the ones that will lead to very radical futures and not necessarily in, in the good sense. And I think if we start to think about it in that way, we also open up a space to ask different questions. When we talk about decoupling, for example, the question today is, can we decouple economic growth from environmental impacts? But why are we choosing economic growth? Why don't we say, how can we decouple well-being from environmental impacts? We still use economic growth as a proxy for, for human well-being, which is uh, not always very helpful. So, we, so when you ask, how can we decouple 
well-being from environmental impacts, it leads to a whole new set of questions and possible solutions and opens up a whole new uh, solution space. And when I look around both the places I've, I've worked and studied um, and people I speak to, I think there are lots of encouraging things. You see disciplinary boundaries being broken down where you actually start off with a problem or a complex problem and you address it not with your disciplinary background, but you address it transdisciplinary across uh, traditional boundaries. And um, the organizations like philosophy in schools where you teach uh, philosophy to children, and it might seem very abstract and, and, and highbrow, but even when you can start some of those conversations, it seems like it seems very complex moving from substance ontologies to process ontologies. And obviously that's not how you talk to kids about it, but when you start to think about your very fundamental relationships with the world, that opens up whole new sets of questions and possible solutions. And there are lots of organizations doing that. Rethinking economics is, is another example. Someone who wants to transform education, move away from this very close, a very hegemonic way of teaching um, economics and bring some more diversity into it and plurality into economics, for example. And I love your question about how do we sit with those big questions, you know, and that that's going to be uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, I guess, I guess, I think it's important we need to do that with, and the, these may, may sound like mundane words, but I think they're important, you know, with kindness and with compassion and with, with inclusion. Uh, and diversity. Um, maybe the kind of short version of that is that we have to go through the process of addressing those those questions in the spirit of the the world into which we want to move, not in the spirit of the world that we have at the moment, where you know our approach might be more meritocratic or competitive, um, or, or you know those kind of other values that we espouse at the moment. We need to role model where we want to go through the process of, uh, in which we want to get there. That's absolutely beautiful. And, and a word that came to my mind that brought it together was love. And th th this idea that that's really what we're trying to nurture between each other. You're right. We have to live what we say and, and, and start now in order to, to move towards that horizon. It, it raises for me the question, and I, and I know not enough, of, I don't know enough about this, but it, the, the idea that springs up in my, my mind or the example is, is, is the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, you know, and ha what can we learn from that? What happened there? Those were painful conversations too, um, but, but from the little I know of them, they were, they were handled in a, in, a, in a different way from what might have been expected. I'm sure they weren't successful in, in, in everything they were trying to do, but I think they did role model a different approach. I'm going to move into to just um, the, the, the last question, um, which also is a springboard for um, more ideas. And, and that's, tell me or tell us a little bit about what you plan, what is next? What, what, what's on your mind? What, what are some of, the, of, uh, of your own um, ambitions and, and, and dreams and, and what might happen next for, for you both? I feel like that's an uh, equally difficult question to answer who, who I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, my time at the On Purpose Associate Program uh, ends in March. So I'm out looking for jobs again. And I think from that from that perspective, I'm looking for exactly the kind of thing that, that Tom was mentioning before. 
finding organizations or places where you have the ends you want to achieve are incorporated into the means. So you have the values you want to build an organization around or, or societies around that you can really feel that they are not just there on a piece of paper or on the website, but they're really well in alive in, in those organizations. Um, from a more intellectual point of view, um, I'm quite interested in understanding the, the temporal dimensions of all this. There's a, a German sociologist called Hartmut Rosa who, on, who tries to understand modern societies in terms of their temporality and, and understanding the climate crisis, social crises, and crisis in democracy, and so forth, in terms of um, um, crisis of uh, resonance or, or temporality. And that is a completely new way for me to think about these kinds of problems. And I think it really opens up for lots of interesting discussions and new angles that, uh, that I haven't considered before. I could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's next at On Purpose as well. So we are, <clears throat> we are, I think, engaging with this question. Maybe it's, maybe it's one of these difficult questions as to, you know, how do we, <clears throat> how do we really, uh, A, develop people who are going to be able to contribute to making some of these big changes happen? How do we develop them as effectively as we can? And how do we maybe role model in how we develop them and how we run ourselves also um, that that kind of change that we think we want to see, um, how we run ourselves as an organization, how we treat individuals, um, how we work with the associates uh, on our program. So, um, you know, we, we, uh, we want to get to a place where we genuinely kind of walk our talk <laughs> and, uh, and we, we are not, we, we do our best already. And we, I think we, you know, we do a good job and have developed over quite a few years, you know, lots of amazing things. Uh, but we are realizing that we want to, we want to go further in that direction. Uh, maybe we need to be, uh, to use Oliver's words, uh, a bit more radical in one direction, uh, to avoid radical outcomes, maybe unintended ones in, in other directions. Well, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, is there any way or any place people can get in touch with you, if so you wished? Um, any websites, any LinkedIn? I think uh, both of us are on LinkedIn and you're very welcome to look us up. We'd, we'd love to hear from you there. Uh, if you want to find out more about On Purpose, the website is onpurpose.org. Uh, and we're also on all the usual social media channels as well. Thank you so much. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design, and we have a new venture, and we'll probably spend a little bit of time podcasting about this or announcing it a little bit more to the world, which is Nature on the Board, the idea of putting a spokesperson for nature and future generations on the board and senior leadership teams of school. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.design. And you can even check out our website, which is still in beta mode on www.natureontheboard.io. Speak to you soon and looking forward to our next conversation next week. Bye-bye.